to become hooked on this action-packed soap opera book that we call Judges. And it's a fun book that's very relevant to us today because it's going to reveal our need to be delivered from our depravity and sin. Not just once, but over and over and over again. See, the overall theme that I'm giving for this book is that the greatness of God's grace is seen in the depths to which it reaches. And in this book, we're going to see Israel fall to depths that a lot of us are going to be like, that's in the Bible? They really did that? Yes. And God's grace reaches them, and it pulls them out into safety. So that's the implication of this book. The main implication of this book, which we saw last week, is that no matter how far we fall into sin, no matter how far we drift away from God, His grace is so great that it can reach us, and it will reach us, and it will lift us out of the depths and lead us to safety. But in order for us to understand the greatness of God's grace, we have to see our great need for it. And that's what the purpose of this morning is going to do. That's the purpose of our text. Now, when I was 12 and we lived in Houston, this was back in the late 70s, so it was before it just exploded with population. So we had tons of woods around our house where I would go explore and discover things and also get in trouble doing things that I shouldn't be doing. Well, one day as I am exploring in the woods, I came across a nest of baby snakes. And because I love snakes, I caught five of them with my bare hand and brought them home to my mom. I put them in a bucket and I brought them home to my mom. (laughs) And when my mom saw the snakes that I brought home to her, she freaked out because they weren't just any kind of snake. They were baby copperheads. And I knew that they were baby copperheads. And so I couldn't understand why my mom freaked out. So I'm like, Mom, they're babies. They're harmless. Oh, and she lit into me. It was like, just because they're babies does not mean they're not poisonous. And she immediately made me take them out, take the shovel, and chop all their heads off, which I did. We may think that, we're, that by playing around with sin, we're handling something harmless. When in reality, we're reaching into a bucket full of poisonous snakes that when they bite us, its venom will sink into our veins and it will cause our hearts to stop beating for God. Welcome to a text that's going to show you the poison of sin. It's way too long. I'm going to have you remain seated. What we're going to do, this chapter 2, this text, is basically serves as a summary of the whole book, okay? And so I want to focus on verses 11 through 15 this morning, and then next week we'll look at verses 16 through chapter 3, verse 6. But I want to read the whole thing so that we get it, okay? And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they chased after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. 
they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of the surrounding, their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people has transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the ways of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. And these are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites, the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived in Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Labo Hamath, for they were there they were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded the fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And we're just going to call them the Ites from now on, okay? And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons. And they served other gods. This is the word of the Lord. All right, I prayed, so we're going to jump in. Uh, this morning, I want to look at three reasons why Israel failed to follow God's command to drive the ites out of the land. Because when we see it, it's going to reveal to us something about sin. And then next week, we're going to look at how God responds to Israel's sin and what this reveals about God and his grace. But we must get this. Judges is not written in chronological order. Okay? The events at the end of the book actually happen sometime around the beginning of the book. But it's not written in chronological order because it's written to make a theological point. And the order that the writer puts the events in, it shows how Israel is getting worse and worse and worse. And they're falling deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. All because it's serving the writer's purpose for why he's writing this book. 
which is summed up in the last verse of the book. Chapter 21, verse 25, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. See, in chapter 1 of Judges, which we didn't read, but he doesn't waste any time in demonstrating this. Because what he's doing in chapter 1, he's going to make a strong contrast between the obedience of the generation of Joshua and the disobedience of the generation that came after Joshua. You see, Judges 1, it deals with the second movement of the conquest of Canaan. The first movement is in Joshua, in the book of Joshua, verses, chapters 1 through 12, where God, in spectacular fashion, led Israel to conquer their enemies. And then once they were conquered and they possessed the land, then the rest of the book of Joshua, chapters 13 through 24, it deals with how the land was divided up amongst the different tribes. So the book of Joshua, it ends with Israel gaining possession of the land, but there's still being some of the Canaanites left in the land that now each individual tribe is to drive out of the land. The book of Joshua ends this way, and the book of Judges begins where each tribe is supposed to carry out God's command to basically destroy completely all of the Canaanites left in the land, which means Joshua's generation did 90% of the work. This generation is required to only do 10% of the work. But before we look at how each tribe fared, uh, we've got to deal with this, and I, it's, it's troubling to me, and I know if you heard what I just said, it's troubling to you. Why would God command his people to utterly and completely destroy nations? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, this is where God, this is God's actual command. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the ites, who are more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus says, but thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down all of their altars, dash to pieces their pillars, and chop down their ashram, and burn their carved images with fire. And the reason why is found in Deuteronomy 9. Verses 4 through 6. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me into possession of this land. No, it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the unrightness of your heart are you going to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God has not given you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. 
for you are a stubborn people. God commands Israel to wipe out the ites, not because Israel is righteous, but because the ites are so wicked. The conquest of Canaan, in other words, is to be an act of God's justice. God's justice upon a perverted and corrupt people. And Israel was to be the instrument through which God would carry out his justice. And (laughs) if you want to look at the gory details of how perverse and corrupt these people were, you can read in Leviticus 18. You can read in Deuteronomy 18. See, Leviticus 18, it deals with all kinds of laws against sexual immorality. And we're going to look at some of them as it applies to the Canaanites later in this sermon. But for right now, Israel was prohibited from any kind of incest with family members. Okay? And then in Deuteronomy 18, we find out that this is exactly what the ites are doing. And then we also find out that they sacrifice their children. They practice witchcraft, divination, sorcery, and other forms of occult and demon worship. In other words, the people occupying the land are not innocent. And God is determined to justly judge them, and he uses Israel to do it. But I get it. God's wrath is not an easy concept for us to handle. And to accept. We all struggle with it. But here's something I want us to see about it. Maybe if we look at it in a different light, it'll ease the struggle. Again, I'm not saying it's not a struggle and it's not a tough issue. Some people say, man, I don't like the idea of the wrath of God. I want a God of love. But here's what we have to understand. To have a God of love, you have to have a God who is angry. Tim Keller, in his book, King's Cross, he says it this way. He says, loving people can get angry, not in spite of their love, but because of it. In fact, the more closely and deeply you love people in your life, the angrier you can get. When you see people who are harmed or abused, what happens? You get mad. Your sense of love and justice are activated together, not in opposition to each other. If you see people destroying themselves or destroying other people and you don't get mad, Keller says, what would we conclude? (laughs) You don't really care about that person. The more loving you are, the more fiercely angry you will be at whatever harms your beloved. So when we think of God's wrath, we... We usually just tend to think of it in terms of God's justice, but we must see it's also a function of his love and of his goodness. You see, because God is loving and good, he must be angry at evil. He must be. He sees the destruction it causes, and it moves him to do something about it. But there's another reason why God wants them to be totally removed. And that's so that these perverted and corrupted people don't influence Israel to practice the same exact things. You see, if left alone, the remaining ites would not so much be a military threat, but a spiritual threat. 
It'd be like a spiritual cancer that if it is not completely removed, it's going to grow and it is going to thrive and it is going to destroy. So let's go back to Judges 1 and see how Israel failed or fared in following God's commands. The first part in chapter 1, it seems like things are going okay. Okay, in verses 1 through 3, Judah is successful. Judah is successful in driving out the inhabitants when they teamed up with Simeon. But here's the question that the text does not answer, but I'm going to raise it. Are they obeying God by collaborating with another tribe, or are they disobeying God? Some think they were successful because they teamed up, but it was up to each individual tribe to believe that God said, I will drive them out. And they were supposed to individually drive them out. So right from the get-go, we might see a falling into sin. But notice uh, what happens in verses 27 through 36 of chapter 1. There's this phrase that's repeated with each of the tribes. Manasseh did not take possession. Ephraim did not drive out. Zebulun did not. Asher, Neptali. And then in verse 34, notice the tribe of Dan was driven out so what happened did god abandon his people i mean are the inhabitants too strong for israel why was israel unsuccessful in driving out the remaining inhabitants well i believe in chapters one through three we get three reasons why from the author the first reason is this israel focused on themselves and they used the ites as forced laborers look at chapter 1 verse 28 verse 30 and verse 33 israel is strong enough to expel the enemy but they don't and you got to ask why well what's the answer they decided to make use of the ites to be their slaves I mean, after all, there's a lot of work to do in establishing a new land, right? We got crops to harvest. We got homes to build. There's a lot of things to do. So what does Israel do? Instead of doing the work themselves, they subject the ites to do the work for them. Israel failed because they focused on their comfort and their ease, not on God's command. In other words, what did they do? They did what was desirable and right in their own eyes rather than what was desirable and right in God's eyes. And by doing so, they did not realize the effect that this would have on them. See, look at what happens next in chapter 3, verses three, verses 5 to 6. The ites, they go from being forced laborers to becoming Israel's friends. And then family members. So the ites are no longer slaves, they're now in-laws. They're no longer regarded as God's enemies, they're now regarded as friends and relatives. Look at the word uh, in chapter 3, verse 6, gave. It means an exchange is a gift. So Israel took the daughters of the ites to be their wives, and then they gave their daughters to the ites as a gift. 
So Israel has moved from ruling over the ites to becoming related to the ites. And Israel's disobedience in chapter 1, it may seem like they're handling harmless baby snakes. Because it did not bring about immediate disaster. But the venom is in their veins. And it's going to lead to two more reasons why they failed. Second reason why Israel failed to follow God's command is because they forgot and forsook God. Because Israel focused on themselves and formed a friendship with the ites, the ites' poison began to reach Israel's heart, it causing their heart to slow down and to stop beating for God. In other words, Israel's friendship with God's enemies led to Israel's cardiac arrest. Look at Judges 2, verses 8 through 10. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Tamath, Perez in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Now, Judges begins with the death of Joshua. So chapter 2, it's really a commentary on why they failed in chapter 1. Okay, notice because Israel formed a friendship with the ites, the poison of the ites begins to influence them, and a whole generation grew up not knowing the Lord or what he had done for Israel. And see, the problem here, it's not simply one of ignorance, as if, oh, the older generation failed to pass on knowledge of the Lord to the new generation. That's part of it. But look at this word, uh, did not know. It does not mean ignorance. It means they had no regard for God. They cared nothing for God or His salvation. The rescue and the redemption that God had graciously accomplished for them means little to them. It doesn't impact their lives. It doesn't stir their affections for God in their heart. In other words, the reality of who God is and what he had done is not real to this generation. So, what's going on? Israel has no regard for their deliverer or his deliverance. This generation's heart for God, in other words, has flatlined. So how in the world can this happen? How does this present generation forget the Lord so much that they forsake God and they care nothing for God? Well, the answer is the third reason why Israel failed to follow God's commands. It's because they fell in love with the ites God. 
Israel's heart stopped beating for God because their heart started to beat for other gods. And then earlier I mentioned that the sexual laws in Leviticus 18 are significant as it relates to the Canaanites, and here's why. Okay, and I'm just going to warn you. Okay, X-rated content, but I will do my best. So leave it up to your imagination without going into graphic detail, okay? The Canaanites worship two deities, Baal and Ashtoreth. Okay, Baal is the male storm and fertility god. And Asterisk was his female companion. Okay, so you can already see where that might go. Okay, the Canaanites were an agrarian people who survived on the fertility of their crops, their livestock, and their families. So Baal is worshipped as the storm god who brings the rain, which fertilizes the ground. But the tricky part is how does he bring the rain? Well, this is where Baal worship involved temple prostitutes performing acts with the worshipers to try to get Baal excited and aroused to do his thing. Now, are we tracking with me so I don't have to go into more detail? Okay, you parents are like, thank you. Okay, stop. Okay. See, here's the thing. The Canaanites in their worship of Baal, they didn't just sit back and chant, hey, let Baal do it. Let go and let Baal. No, they were active participants with temple prostitutes in the hopes that Baal would do his thing. So, (laughs) oh man, this is why Leviticus 18 is significant because the things that the Lord prohibits Israel from doing are the things that the Canaanites are doing, and now Israel is joining in with them. Israel befriended God's enemies, in other words, and became like God's enemies. What started off as acceptance became apostasy. A total rejection of God and a total embracing of other gods. See, look back at our text in verse in chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. Notice the action verbs. Notice the action verbs describing Israel's declension deeper and deeper into sin. The summation of what Israel did was evil in the sight of God. Why? Because they began to worship and serve Baal. So they're looking to Baal to satisfy and provide for them. By serving Baal, notice what happens next. They forsook God which means they abandoned God, they rejected God, they deserted the one who saved them. They abandoned God, why? In order to chase after other gods. And then when they chase after these other gods, what are they doing? They're bowing down to worship them. So this is more than just spiritual adultery. This is why the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, causing him to hand Israel over into the hand of their enemies, where Israel became severely distressed. So, golly, do you see the irony of what the author is portraying here? In pursuing their own interests, Israel found themselves subjected to the interests of others. Israel formed a friendship with someone who's not a friend. 
Instead of finding the freedom and happiness that they sought by rejecting God's rule and throwing God's rule off, what did they discover? Other gods are now ruling over them. What a picture, is it not? What a picture of what it looks like when we befriend an enemy of God. When we handle something so poisonous, the venom will reach our heart and it will cause it to stop beating for God. So do you see what this is teaching us about sin? It's not a friend. It is an enemy. And it is an enemy that hates God and it hates you. And its goal is to destroy you. Its goal is to get you not just to sin once, but to get you to sin over and over and over again. Why? Because it doesn't want you to find healing and relief from God. It wants to keep you away from God. And the longer you are kept away from God, the further and further and the deeper and the deeper into sin you go. In other words, sin wants you to get close to it. And when you do, it deceives you into thinking that you can control it, (laughs) that you can manage it, that you can use it for your advantage to get something from it. But instead, what do you find? You don't control it. It controls you. And it seeks to use you for its advantages. Which means sin can never give, it can only take. And what does it take? It takes your heart, it takes your devotion for God, so that your heart stops beating for God and starts beating for something else a false God that can't give you what the true God can. And what's the author showing us? Is that once we befriend sin, it does not take long for it to capture our heart and cause us to drift away from God. And there are some of you right now who are becoming close friends with sin. Something other than God is catching your eye. And you want to pursue it. You want to get close to it. And maybe it is, like Israel, something that involves sexual immorality. Could be adultery. Or it could be a a pre-affair. I mean, maybe you haven't acted on it yet. But you find yourself wanting to be closer to someone who's not your spouse. And you reason, well, we're just friends, right? Harmless. But if you're honest with yourself, you find this other person appealing and you find it exciting. This person treats you different than your spouse and you find yourself wanting to be with them. And here's my question for you. Has sin become such a friend to you 
that you reasoned in your mind and in your heart that because you haven't acted on it, that it's okay? If you're doing this, you're on the road to forgetting and forsaking God. What about pornography? I mean, it's not just a guy thing either. What's it doing to your heart? I mean, yes, it's easy to do because you can do it privately and nobody knows about it. But is the guilt and the shame affecting your relationship to God? Are you becoming like Israel where it might be causing you to have no regard for God or for his salvation? And there are some of you who are beyond the friendship stage with sin and you're actually in love with it. And if you are, there are two things going on. Either you don't want to stop or you feel like you can't stop. If you don't want to stop, i got to ask you this question. Is sin really giving you what you want and need? Does it really satisfy? Now, I'm not saying it's not enjoyable. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that sin's not enjoyable or pleasurable. If it wasn't, then we wouldn't want it, right? So the question, though, is this. Haven't you discovered that it can only take and that it cannot give. See, what does it do to your soul afterward? How does it affect your relationship to God? How does it affect your relationship to others? Is the numbness, is the guilt, is the shame worth it? And then for those of you who want to stop, but you feel so trapped and controlled and you can't see a way out. This is why I hate that I have to end the sermon the way I have to end it. There's hope. There is hope. And that's going to be the main subject next week, okay? But I have to end. <laughs> I got to end this way. What is this text wanting us to see about sin? Two things. Sin is not a friend. Not a friend. It is a poisoning influence that seeks to stop your heart from beating for God. And this is what we must get and must understand about sin. It has the power to do that. It has the power to destroy you. And secondly, because sin is so powerful, we need a Savior. We are not strong enough to break the chains or the bonds that it has over us. And this is how I want to end. And this is not going to sound right. <laughs> okay, You're going to be like, Pete, that, that, that does not just sound right. I want us to see how liberating it is to actually understand sin. Because when you understand sin's power and its poisonous influence, what does it do? It frees you from having to be your own Savior. 
it frees you to see that you can't break sin's powerful hold over you. It frees you to stop trying to break sin's power and hold over you. And it frees you to stop beating yourself up when you realize you can't. In other words, it frees you to admit that you need someone stronger to do it. It takes the weight off of your shoulders from thinking that you can do it and that you must do it, that you can conquer it on your own. Understanding sin's power and influence. It's meant not to drive you to despair. It's meant to drive you to a deliverer. It's meant to cause you to cry out, I can't do it. Please, deliver me. It should lead us, in other words, to look full into the wonderful face of Jesus and cry out to him, deliver me. And I hate to leave you wallowing in thoughts about sin without giving you thoughts about a beautiful Savior. But that's next week. So here's what I want you to imagine. Okay, imagine that the episode of These Are the Days of the Judges' Lives has just ended on Friday. Okay, and you're waiting now for the promotional commercial to come on to lead you into what's coming next week. Right? Well, here it is. What's the promo? When we handle and befriend sin, God is a friend of sinners. And if you notice from our text, every single time he sent a deliverer. And we'll hear more about that next week. I hope you come back. Stay tuned. All right. Let me, well, yeah, let's.